Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 12th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started with our litigation report. A significant WCAB panel decision ruled that the physiological manifestations of stress are limited by the good faith personnel action defense that applies to site cases. Here's what happened in the case of Meredith Oliver versus AstraZeneca. Meredith Oliver was a regional sales manager for AstraZeneca. She claimed to have sustained a continuous trauma industrial injury to her heart, cardiovascular system in the form of hypertension, thyroid, vocal cords, throat, neurological system in the form of headaches, gastrointestinal system, and psychological system. The trial was contentious, lasting seven full days, and included the testimony from the applicant and several co-workers. As a result of applicants' behavior toward her subordinates, she became subject herself to discipline by her supervisor. Her claim of psychiatric injury and the physiological effects of a psychological injury were based in part on the effects of the discipline she received. The workers' compensation judge found that applicant did not sustain the injury she was alleged and issued a take-nothing and Oliver petitioned for reconsideration. The WCAB, in the noteworthy panel decision of Meredith Oliver versus AstraZeneca, denied reconsideration and affirmed the take-nothing. Labor Code Section 3208.3H says that an injured worker will be barred from receiving compensation for stress and or any physiological manifestations substantially caused by legitimate good faith personnel actions. The work comp judge noted that in the case of Verga versus WCAB, the WCAB found that an injured worker's subjective misperception of harassment based on the disdainful reaction of her co-workers to her mistreatment of them by being rude, inflexible, easily upset, and demeaning toward them are not actual events of employment. Given that the applicant was found not to have sustained a compensable injury to her psychological system, the applicant was also found not to have sustained any resulting physiological injury to her heart, cardiovascular system, thyroid, vocal cords, throat, neurological system, and gastrointestinal system in the form of gastroesophageal reflux disease. A Sacramento Superior Court jury acquitted Dr. Scott Dodd Anderson on two counts of sexually abusing his patients, but failed to reach verdicts in 15 other counts, prompting the judge to declare a mistrial. Anderson was a workers' compensation doctor at U.S. HealthWorks on Folsom Boulevard who had been treating patients for on-the-job injuries. His accusers said he inappropriately touched them during visits they had with him in 2009. The deputy district attorney told the court immediately after the verdicts that her office would retry Dr. Anderson on the remaining counts. Anderson had initially been charged with 26 felonies, including three rapes and 15 misdemeanors, on suspicion that he had inappropriate physical contact with five patients. The complaint had been pared down to 13 felonies and nine misdemeanors when testimony began in his trial on October 23rd, with the three rape counts dismissed by the DA's office due to insufficient evidence. Five more counts were dismissed during the trial. 
Of the 15 counts that remain, eight of them are on felony charges of engaging in sexual contact with patients, and seven are on misdemeanor accusations of sexual battery. And now our fraud report. Federal prosecutors see medical research as emerging as a trend in healthcare fraud. A trio of federal prosecutors outlined trends they are seeing in healthcare fraud, but were cautious during a panel discussion about moving too far from traditional law enforcement. The trio were part of a panel at the 13th Annual Pharmaceutical Regulatory and Compliance Congress for Corporate Compliance Officers held in Washington, D.C. Fraud in medical research is an emerging theme prompting concerns about patient care. Susan Winkler, a prosecutor with the Massachusetts U.S. Attorney's Office, said that research fraud cases exploit a weak point where the commercial and research industries connect. Rooting out medical research fraud is necessary for patient care based upon evidence-based medicine. Doctors should rely on scientific evidence that is accurate and not affected in some way by a money interest behind it. Winkler pointed to the government's massive settlement with GlaxoClickKline-Smith uh, in July for $3 billion to resolve a range of fraud allegations, including unlawful promotion of certain drugs, failure to report safety data, and false price reporting. Following the announcement, GSK put in place a number of procedures to bolster transparency in its research publications. Winkler lauded GSK's efforts and told the compliance officers in the audience that such practices are worth looking into for their own companies. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has posted two sets of draft regulations implementing SB 863 to its online forum for public comment. These are the Supplemental Job Displacement Benefit, Voucher Regulations, and the Physician Pre-Designation and Chiropractic Primary Treating Physician Regulations. Members of the public will have 10 days to review and comment on the draft regulations. The proposed regulation re uh, revisits existing regulations to conform to the Workers' Compensation Reform Bill signed earlier this year by Governor Brown. The SJDB voucher regulations include a proposed physician report of permanent and stationary status and work capacity form, an optional description of employees' job duties form, and make other revisions and additions to the current SJDB regulations to conform to the requirements of SB 863. The pre-designation regulations provide that an employee may, if they meet other specific requirements, pre-designate a personal physician if they have health care insurance for non-occupational injuries. The regulations concerning the limitations on chiropractors serving as an injured employee primary treating physician provide that a chiropractor shall not be a treating physician after the employee has received the 24 chiropractic visits allowed by the California Labor Code. It defines a chiropractic visit as any chiropractic office visit, regardless of whether the services performed involve chiropractic manipulation or are limited to evaluation and management. Finally, the regulations provide that an employer may file a petition for an order from the administrative director directing that an employee select a new primary treating physician once they have received the 24 
chiropractic visits allowed by the labor code. The CWCI has received DWC approval on its revisions to the pamphlets and posting notices that employers and insurers use to meet workers' comp employee notice requirements. Insured and self-insured employers are subject to the notice requirements, and failure to provide current information to employees can lead to civil penalties of up to $7,000 for each violation of the posting requirement and the tolling of the statute's limitations for filing claims. The Labor Code allows private entities to prepare and publish the posting notice or pamphlets if they are approved in advance by the DWC. After SB 863 was signed in September, the Institute began revising its posting notices if a work injury occurs and its new hire pamphlet, Facts About Workers' Compensation. Among the SB 863 updates are revised language on permanent disability, the Supplementary Job Displacement Benefit, Physician Predesignation, and New Language on the Return to Work Fund. The updated materials were approved by the DWC last week as meeting the posting notice and new hire notice requirements. The CWCI is accepting pre-orders for the updated notices and will begin shipments later this month so that employers can have the current information available by January 1st. The CWCI also has updated its injured worker pamphlet, Facts for Injured Workers, and will continue to offer it as part of its pamphlet series. There's no longer a statutory requirement that claims administrators include a pamphlet explaining a worker's benefits and obligations with the first notice of payments or notice of delay. However, many companies continue to do so as a good claims practice to provide claimants with basic information early in the life of the claim. The CWCI pamphlets, posting notices, and claim forms can be ordered online from the Institute's store. Experts in Medicare secondary payer compliance say it has become easier for insurers and employers to settle some workers' compensation claims since the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services began using a new contractor to review Medicare set-asides. Provider Resources, Inc. of Erie, Pennsylvania began reviewing Medicare set-aside agreements in July. Approvals previously were handled by Annapolis Junction, Maryland-based LifeCare Management Partners. Over the past year, CMS has been seeking a new and qualified vendor through a request for proposal process to take on the role of the workers' compensation review contractor. On June 6, 2011, CMS awarded Provider Resources with the WCRC contract effective July 1, 2011. However, the transition was delayed due to a protest filed by one of the contract bidders, Data and Analytics Solutions Incorporated. The Government Accountability Office had to render a decision in reference to the protest, which was ultimately dismissed. Sources say the review time has dropped to about 30 business days in the past several months, down from six months to a year under life care management. And in medical news, a new medical journal article says that orthopedic surgeons in training claim they were tired less often after rules regulating how much they could work went into place. But the results published in the Annals of Surgery found the trainee doctors said they felt less prepared as doctors and were less satisfied with their education. 
In 2003, the U.S. Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education implemented new policies limiting the on-duty hours of notoriously sleep-deprived residents to 80 per week, with a minimum of 10 hours off between shifts. Those changes were further updated in 2011. The main goal was to ease young doctors' fatigue and fatigue-related medical errors. The work limits seem to have been somewhat successful, but they also came at a cost. Deborah Weinstein from Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, who worked on the study, said that restricting residents' time in the hospital does risk affecting their skill and sense of preparedness. Continuing to further limit duty hours may not be the best way to address the goals of patient safety, resident well-being, and excellent medical education. Some past studies have suggested that work limits improve quality of life for residents, but have a negative impact on their education. One survey published last year found that the majority of surgery residents worked more hours than the current regulations allowed. In the new study, researchers analyzed surveys completed by a total of 216 residents at the Harvard Orthopedic Combined Residency Program. And in other news, Accident Fund Insurance Company of America is celebrating its 100th year anniversary. They have been headquartered in Lansing, Michigan since 1912. Over the century, they have evolved from a state fund to a private workers' compensation insurer licensed in 48 states and the District of Columbia. In California, they operate in the insurance unit known as CompWest Insurance Company in San Francisco. In 1911, a federal act was passed by Congress and signed into law by President William Howard Taft that allowed every state to create an accident fund to provide a stable source of insurance coverage for all employers. Michigan became the second state in the country behind Washington to create an entity known as an accident fund to guarantee a stable source of insurance coverage. On September 1, 1912, the Michigan State Accident Fund was authorized to begin writing workers' comp insurance in Michigan. On November 25, 1912, the Accident Fund of Michigan received its first policy applications from the agencies of George Mokey and Son in Zeeland and the Arnold J. Hammer Agency in Detroit. Accident Fund served as the state's workers' compensation agency for 82 years before it was privatized in 1994. At that time, Accident Fund was purchased by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and it became known as Accident Fund Insurance Company. Accident Fund sold workers' compensation insurance in Michigan alone until 2000 when the company launched a national expansion. The company is now licensed to sell workers' compensation insurance in 48 states and the District of Columbia. The California Division of Workers' Compensation has announced that registration for its 20th annual educational conference is now open. The conference will take place February 28th to March 1st, 2013 at the Los Angeles Sheraton Gateway Hotel and March 4th to 5th, 2013 at the Oakland Marriott City Center Hotel. Attendee, exhibitor, and sponsor registration forms may be downloaded from the DWC Educational Conference webpage. Conference registration flyers were mailed last week to the more than 8,000 names on the DWC mailing list. 
Registration forms are also available at the conference website and the front counters of the 24 DWC district offices in the state. This annual event is the largest workers' compensation training in the state and allows claims administrators, attorneys, medical providers, return-to-work specialists, employers, and others to learn firsthand about the most recent developments in the system. The 2013 conference will be particularly important as DWC implements the provisions of SB 863. Employers' attorneys, claims professionals, return-to-work specialists, medical providers, and anyone interested in California's work comp system will find valuable information at the 2013 DWC Educational Conference. The conference features a variety of workers' compensation experts from the DWC, other state and public agencies, and private sectors. The DWC expects 800 registrants and more than 50 exhibitors at each location, so DWC encourages attendees and exhibitors to register early. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.